Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is the Curious Climber podcast, and this is Hazel. In this episode, I speak to Alex Honnold, and it's a little bit of a different episode because this was actually a live webinar hosted by Chef, Sheffield Adventure Film Festival. So there's the standard kind of awkwardness around um, being live. And there was also a few listener questions. So we were kind of like going through people's questions on the go, answering them. So it's a little bit of a different feel to this than compared to the other podcasts that we do. But it was a really cool talk. It was obviously pretty amazing to get Alex Honnold um, at Shaf and now on this podcast. Super lucky to have him because he's a very uh, busy and sought after person. Uh, if you don't know who he is, then I don't know <laughs> what to say. <laughs> um, you know, most people know who he is at this point in time, and he's most well known for being the best free soloist that ever lived. I think that it's pretty um, unquestionable um, since he free soloed El Capitan by the free rider route. Having done that route myself, I can attest to the fact that this is as audacious as it seems and could be one of the most impressive things that anyone's ever done in sport in general, uh, let alone um, within our small niche sport of climbing. That said, we don't talk tons about Freerider. I think a lot of people have have asked Alex endless questions about his free solo of that route. And there's obviously the film about it, Free Solo. But there is one question I felt like wasn't asked enough or didn't go or people didn't go into quite enough depth. And that's a question around what his motivations are or were for that route. And could they, you know, are, were they different given the fact that this was obviously a huge thing for his career and, you know, there's a film involved and, and, you know, it was, it was obviously going to be something that was going to be talked a lot and celebrated. So we did go into his motivations quite a bit, which I personally thought was really interesting. Aside from that, we talked a little bit about the kid he's got on the way and how his life has changed over the years. Now he's a married man. He's not the dirtbag that we once um, knew him as. And we also talk a lot about the Honnold Foundation and his uh, commitment to environmentalism and effective altruism. So hopefully you'll get to listen to answers to questions that don't often get asked Alex, but obviously there are a lot of interviews and podcasts already out there, but hopefully this one will be slightly different. So I hope you really enjoy it and I hope you're all surviving winter wherever you are and making the most of whatever it is you've got going on. Okay, thanks a lot for listening and enjoy. I don't know, maybe just get started by telling us what you've been up to today. 
Uh, I've been at the climbing gym. I mean, I'm, I am at my home in Las Vegas, so, you know, it's still kind of early here. So I did a gym session this morning and, uh, you know, pretty normal day. Nice. What are you training for at the moment? What, what's, what's your like climbing scene right now? I've been in uh, full sport climbing mode basically just sort of performance rock climbing. I've been, it's been a couple months of it. And, uh, and, you know, Sani, my wife is, is having a baby in February. So, uh, so basically for the foreseeable future, I'm not going on any big trips or doing any, you know, big adventures. So I've been in full sport climbing mode. Nice. Are you still doing the lattice plan? Uh, not exactly. Um, I've actually, I kind of made my own version of, of the, the lattice training stuff. I'm, I'm still using a spreadsheet and I actually find it incredibly helpful for me, but, uh, but I've taken a lot of the things that I learned from them and sort of developed it for my own. Cause I'm mostly climbing outside. I'm climbing outside, you know, four or five days a week. And so I don't really need the full like gym training program that, that comes from lattice, but I'm using, uh, their sort of exercises for all the extra stuff. Nice. Cool. So your lifestyle has changed a lot, right? Since we first knew each other. Um, and I feel like people always knew you as this like dirt bag in the van, minimalist lifestyle kind of thing. And um, you've got a kid on the way. So congrats about that. <laughs> and, um, and you're married and you have like a proper house and stuff. Like, I don't know. How, how do you see the whole transition into like being kind of normal member Sedentary. of society? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty into it. It's a, uh, you know, I mean, the whole point of, of the, the dirtbag climbing thing was just to be able to climb full time. And now I'm in a house in a stable relationship and I'm still climbing full time, but I'm just slightly more comfortable and I take showers more often. You know, it's all, it's like, it's a pretty good scene. <laughs> like, uh, you know, there's a reason people like living in houses because it's, it's pretty comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> but, I mean, nice. that's the thing about living, living in Las Vegas is that you can climb outdoors year round. I mean, it's the best four season climbing in the country and. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm climbing as much as, or, I mean, and in some ways, I think with the home, I wind up climbing slightly more than, than I would in a van, not necessarily more, but it's just like a healthier lifestyle. You know, like I eat a little better. I'm a little cleaner. It's like, you know, I like I'm healthier. And so I think overall, I'm actually able to climb more and, and, and train a little bit more. Yeah. I feel like you can get into a bit more of a routine when you have a base rather than the whole like van scene. Yeah, that's, I mean, the thing with the van scene is that if you're climbing all day and then you get back to the van, it's like, I mean, right now it's quite cold in the desert. And so if you're going to do any supplemental training stuff, it's like freezing cold outside and it's dark and it's hard to really motivate to like, okay, time to do like pull-ups and push-ups and like basic workout stuff. And you're kind of like, or I'll just snuggle in my car and watch a show or something. <laughs> kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, how's Sonny doing? She's good. I mean, I've not, I haven't known any, uh, really pregnant people before. It seems quite difficult. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, she, I mean, she's doing great. She's still like coming to the crag and climbing a bit and, and, uh, you know, going for hikes and stuff, but, uh, definitely getting very pregnant and I think pretty uncomfortable and it's, it's all seems pretty challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting to that age where like all my friends are having babies and, um, after, after birth, they just like look at you with this look that's like. I don't know. It just seems super hardcore. Like, I don't know. It just seems scary. <laughs> um, uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Um, how do you reckon like your ideas around 
I don't know, because I think being a dirtbag climber is maybe like more conducive to the minimalist kind of thing, which kind of ties in with environmentalism a little bit. Do you find it harder, like now you live in a house, not to just like collect loads of things and like, have you brought your like minimalism from your dirtbag lifestyle into like living in a house or did that kind of go out the window? No, I, I definitely have. I, I hate things like to me, the things around the house are all like plastic trash. You're like, do we need more plastic trash around the house? Like all the weird things. Sonny is a little more into, uh, you know, decoration. Like we have Christmas decorations up right now and it does make the house feel all homey and it's, and it's lovely. But, uh, I'm like, this is all basically a bunch of plastic trash. You know, I'm kind of like not that into it, but, uh, you know, I think for balancing a relationship, obviously, you know, I've got to compromise a little bit. <laughs> I can, I can handle some degree of plastic trash around the house if it makes it feel, you know, homey and holiday-like. Yeah, so no point getting a house if you're just going to live in, like, a sparse, empty room, seems like. Yeah, I, I think we strike an okay balance. Like, Sonny definitely would prefer to have, like, more things and decorations and stuff around the house, and I would prefer far fewer, and I think come out nicely in the middle. Nice. Uh, cool. So it'd be cool to just talk a little bit about the Honold Foundation. Um, maybe you could just tell us like what you think is the coolest thing that the foundation's doing at the moment and maybe just like introduce it to people who don't know what it is. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, the Honold Foundation uh, supports solar energy projects around the world. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, We basically support solar projects. And I don't know, the coolest thing... It's hard to say, in the last couple of years, we have really expanded the scope of, of the work. We're just basically, we've been making more in donations and therefore able to give away more money in grants. And so it means we're able to support quite a few more projects. And so now we're, we're doing all kinds of interesting things. I mean, when I started the Honda Foundation, I would support one or two, basically two projects a year because it was just my money and you can only, it only goes so far. Um, but now we're supporting, you know, 10 to 20 projects a year and, and each one of them is sort of an interesting, uh, they're often sort of one-off cases where it's a particular village that has a particular need for, for energy, for whatever reason, you know, be that, uh, powering, you know, pumps or agricultural things, or, I mean, we're doing something with, uh, solar powered boats in the Amazon, you know, like basically in each case, the more that I learned about it, the more interesting it is like with the, with the solar powered boats. It's one of those interesting things where, you know, you hear it and you're like, huh, like, is that cool? You know, it's like, it's, it's not obvious, but the interesting thing about it is that with really remote villages in the Amazon, the cost of fuel is exorbitantly high because like, as you get further and further up a river, it costs more and more to get the fuel there. So by the end of the river, it costs an absurd amount to get that last, you know, gallon or last liter of fuel to the middle of nowhere. And so in places like that, it's actually incredibly cost effective to, to not have to use fuel. And then it's a whole interesting thing because transportation by boat prevents people from cutting roads and roads are sort of the, the branching off point for logging and deforestation and, and all kinds of illegal activity that, that degrade the forest. And so basically, if people are able to economically handle their transportation by boat, then it prevents a whole further degradation of the ecosystem. So it's one of those things that the more you learn about the project, you're more like, that's a really good idea and that makes a lot of sense. And it's nice to be able to support that in some way. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, basically the Home Foundation is doing all kinds of interesting projects around the world like that. Nice. I, I think of you as like um, someone who like values efficiency a lot. Like uh, 
obviously like you're a really efficient climber and you're like always about doing things quickly and efficiently and I think of you as like someone who extends that to the rest of your life do you do you feel like you also extended that to the Honnold Foundation like are you looking for projects that like are like maximally efficient uh, use of money yeah I mean for I mean, actually, I think in some ways I'd, I'd prefer to, to swap in, like not so much efficient, but things that make sense. You know, like with climbing, you want to do something the best way. Like I, I love best practices, you know, where you're doing it like the, the cleanest or simplest way. It's not just about efficiency, but it's about doing the thing that makes sense. And definitely when I started the Honda Foundation, I was only funding projects where I was like, that is an obvious like win-win. Like I love projects where you're like, that is win-win-win. You know, it's like good for everybody. You're like, why doesn't that exist? Uh, like for example, the last two years we've supported a couple of projects, one in Guatemala, um, like a school for indigenous girls where it's just like solar on a school. It's a, it's a grid tied system. I mean, basically it's just saving the school a bunch of money, but you're like, it's good for the environment. Uh, you know, just because it's, it's cleaning the grid, it's good for the school because they save a bunch of money and, you know, and therefore they're able to spend it on their real purpose, which is educating indigenous girls. It's just kind of one of those things where you're like, this makes total sense. It's good for everybody. Like, why hasn't this already happened? It's like, I love funding projects like that. We're like, this should have happened a long time ago, you know, and it's just like nice to be able to make it happen. Nice. Yeah. Have you, um, have you heard of the philosopher, William McCaskill? He wrote that yeah. book, Doing Good Better. Did you read the book? Uh, I can't remember. I've listened to a couple of podcasts. Like I listened to his whole thing. Isn't it him with uh, Sam Harris? Like their whole, yeah, like, like yeah, on the, that one, yeah. of the, the waking up app. Yeah. I've listened to a bunch of it. I, I think I maybe read the, one of the, I, I can't remember. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Just, um, he just, he talks about how, like when we're trying to decide whether to buy something for ourselves, like a washing machine or a laptop or something, we like, might spend like half a day researching like the pros and cons of which laptop uh but then when it comes to giving to charity we're just like that take my money you know it's like we don't really research where our money's going and it's kind of done on this like feel good thing like oh this charity it feels good to give to and then we just like give our money there and he's all about like so that's the altruistic bit, but like, where's the effective bit? And he talks about like how so many charities fail and that kind of thing. Um, how do you think about that? Like, um, you know, how transparent are you around like where the money's going? And um, I guess like why, what, I guess because you're funding the projects, like why wouldn't someone just donate directly to the project? What's the benefit of, yeah, totally. a foundation on top of those projects. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I sort of grappled with that question when I started the foundation because, like, basically, why do it publicly at all? Because if it's just me donating my money to specific projects, like, why even have a foundation? Why not just send a check to a couple of the projects each year? Ultimately, I decided that that it was worth having a public facing foundation because you know, as a as a professional athlete, basically, you know, I, I kind of realized that that my my, my, you know, basically I'm never going to make that much money, but I am relatively well-known and I'm able to sort of round up donations. And so I was like, really my, my biggest possible impact is probably more in the fundraising side than, than in the actual direct donation side. And so that's why I sort of chose to do the public facing foundation. Um, and, and we've definitely seen that because when I started the Honolulu foundation, I was donating 50 K of my own money each year. And the last couple of years we've given away over a million dollars in grants. 
So it's like 20 times the impact that, that I was having as an individual. So, you know, it's definitely been worth it to be, to be public in that way. But now because we're public, you know, we have a, well, I mean, I think we have a legal responsibility. I mean, you know, as a, as a 501c3, we have a legal responsibility to our donors. So it is all transparent. You can see where all the money goes. You can look at our year end report. Um, there's a pretty lengthy process to evaluating all the grants. Like the last two years, um, I think over the last two years, we've had something like a thousand grant applications. So like a thousand different projects around the world apply and we funded, you know, something like 20 or 30 of them. And so, you know, it's like this incredible winnowing process of, of uh, like, it's pretty tight selection. So I don't know. I mean, I think all the projects that we've done are things that, you know, each one stand alone. I'd be like, oh, I'm proud of that. Like, that's a good project. Like, that's, that's a good idea. But, oh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad that uh, I'm going to say thanks to Kevin for posting the book, Doing Good Better. A good yeah, book. It's a bit, it's a bit uh, uncomfortable at times, though, because he's really, like, he's quite, it comes across very cold-hearted because it's very much like, how can you, how do you maximize the impact of every pound spent? Um, and so like he, he would say like, don't give to this charity because it doesn't like save enough lives per pound or something, right. Or per dollar. Um, so like, it, it's a bit uncomfortable sometimes because it seems to take some of like the humanity away from charity somehow or something but anyway i really recommend it to people who are interested in stuff um yeah yeah to some extent though you have to decide which things you care about most because you know if your goal is to save human lives like you know the goal of the Hanover Foundation isn't to save human lives because if it was we'd be working on things like you know anti-malarial netting and, and you know all kinds of like other sorts of or like deworming projects like basically things that more directly save human life but I mean, the goal of the Human Foundation is to improve human lives in a way that also helps the environment, basically a transition to renewable energy in, in applications that also improve quality of life for, for communities. And I'm sort of like, yeah, it's not necessarily extending human lifespans, but it is, I think, taking an important step forward for, for people. Yeah, I guess like the climate crisis, though, like uh, projects that um, contribute to, to that or not the crisis, but <laughs> the opposite of the crisis. Um, they, you know, they, at the root of that is pro- like human and animal suffering, isn't it really? Like just because it's like this long thing that isn't going to kill someone's life maybe tomorrow, like that, the heart of it is, right, that we don't want this climate crisis because we'll suffer as a result. Um, and and every other species on Earth will suffer as a result. yeah. Um, I, I'm always quite interested by like how people perceive the climate crisis because I feel like um, there's one way of looking at it is like you kind of have this minimalist lifestyle, like really low impact lifestyle. Maybe you don't fly. Maybe you don't like try and earn as much as you can. You kind of like maybe you're a bit anti-capitalist. And then I feel like another way of looking at it is to kind of... Um, fully embrace like modern society and capitalism and maybe you earn to give um but you certainly like wouldn't make a decision along the lines of okay I'm not going to fly to this event um which is going to maybe earn me 100k or whatever half of which I could give away do you see what I mean like it may be the, the no no I mean I've 
Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. I've grappled with all that that quite a bit. I mean, I personally have fully embraced modern society. I, I'm actually sort of personally opposed to to the environmentalism of, of sacrifice, you know, sort of in the US, like the 1970s style, like Jimmy Carter, like turn down your thermostat, wear your sweater and just suffer through the winter. And I'm kind of like, it's not it's not a very appealing form of environmentalism, even though obviously there's merit to it. And, you know, it's like, it makes sense if you're trying to lower your impact on earth to some degree, you should just have fewer things and do a little bit less and, and just like be content with with less. But I just think that for, you know, the six, seven billion people on earth, that's just not like a winning approach. And I feel like it's better to to embrace modernity, and then sort of alter it in the ways that are necessary to to make it still, you know, sustainable, basically. It's like, yeah. I just think that, that the modern world can be done in a way that has a much smaller uh, impact on earth. It's like, we should be working on that. At least that's the approach that I've taken. Yeah. And then there's also the, the argument of like, even if it were better for people to kind of sacrifice modern luxury, they're not going to like, even if we could persuade like half the people in the UK, there's the whole of China and India, um, and these huge populations that are like most likely just not going to do that. Right. So there's also the kind of the, the likelihood of that happening. Are you, are you distracted by the comments? I'm like reading all this interesting. I'm like, I want to open some of these links, but I feel like since we're technically having a conversation, I'll read all the links later. But. Um, yeah, so like someone here is like, just throwing money at the climate crisis won't solve it. People need to make decisions and, fundament, and then fundamental change. That's more than just cash. Yeah, actually, I, mean, what, I actually slightly disagree that? with that. But, you know. do, you, do, you, do you ever think that like, uh, the, um, you know, the kind of throwing money at the situation, like creating better technology, like um, I've heard people argue that even if we could do that, like say we could just like limit emissions completely, but it required like these huge machines that like sequestered carbon at this epic rate. And that's like how we solved it. But we'd live in this world of like machines, essentially. Um, like, What's your argument to someone who says they don't want to live in that kind of world? Well, I would say create the world that you do want to live in. It's like, I mean, I don't, I don't really necessarily think that that's the world that we're going to wind up in anyway, just because I think a lot of the strategies for for avoiding, you know, climate crisis right now, revolve around regenerative agriculture, reforestation, projects like that, like basically return to nature. I mean, there's all kinds of like 30 by 30 sorts of projects, you know, preserving 30% of the earth by, by 2030. I mean, there, there are a lot of like sort of pro-nature solutions out there. You know, I, I don't think I basically I think it's a slightly false dichotomy to be like either we live in like a technological world or like this full back to nature world. It's like you can have a little bit of both. Hopefully, hopefully you can cherry pick the best of both worlds. Yeah, I'm hopeful of. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, it sounds like you are right. It sounds like you're optimistic, like you're a climate optimist. Yeah, I, I kind of am. And I mean, it's funny because I've read quite a bit about it and I know that there's not a ton of you know, it's, it's not necessarily well-founded optimism. Like there's not a ton of evidence to indicate that things are all going to work out. Okay. But I mean, I think the, re one of the reasons that I always come back to being slightly optimistic is just that I feel like 
it just hasn't been that big of a crisis. Like it's not that pressing of a problem. Like climate change hasn't affected the quality of that many people's lives directly yet. And so there aren't that many people actively working on, on solving problems. You know, it's like one of those things that like 15 years ago when people say that like things will happen soon, it's like, basically I just feel like the human collective effort hasn't quite been, been born on the problem yet. You know, it's like people need to start trying before solutions occur. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can think of arguments against that, but um, I won't bore you with them. Yeah, we're, we're both like reading these long, uh, <laughs> like, I, like, I love, uh, I mean, this, this sort of like environmental conversation is, uh, is like largely what we talk about on the way to the crag half the time, you know, depending on who I'm climbing with on a given day, it's like, this is the kind of stuff that you talk about and argue about and consider. And, you know, I'm, I'm totally interested, but it's like, to some extent, though, we just have to wait and see how it all plays out. Yeah. And I think there's also, like, uh, if you're too neg- negative about it, then it's like, what's the what's the point, right? Then you kind of give up. Yeah, exactly. You're sort of, like, frozen with it. That, that That's the challenge with that stuff. It's like, if you're really trying to minimize your impact, you know, the obvious solution is suicide, but that's just not, like, it's not, it's not a great solution. And so, you know... It's like barring that, you may as well try to find a, a positive way forward. Yeah, and sometimes as well, I, I I say to myself sometimes like, there's other ways that the world could end too, right? Like a meteor could just hit the planet a week from now. I mean, like it's already kind of like a precious balance, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So is that is that your optimism optimistic <laughs> take or is that your pessimistic take? I don't know. It's sort of like uh we can't control everything kind of take. Like at some point, yeah, just like we've got to let things pan out. I don't know. Um Yeah. What well, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that that no individual is gonna have that big of an impact. So, so at a certain point, you just have to just kind of grind ahead in a way that you think is, is having a positive impact. And like, basically you just have to best do the best that you think you can, you know, vote, like try to have an impact where you can on a societal level, but then on a personal impact, you just like do what you can. But beyond that, you know, it's like, you're still just going to lead your life. And it's like, you just can't worry about it all the time. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's kind of my feeling with, with the work we're doing through the Hana foundation is that realistically, I mean, even though we've, we've given over a million dollars in grants the last two years, that's like nothing in the grand scheme of the global transition to renewables or in the global effort to, to provide energy access to, to, you know, the billion people on earth that don't currently have access to energy. It's like a million dollars is a drop in the bucket, but you're like, you know, at least it's a drop in the bucket. Like at least it's something. And I think for me, that's enough to, to sleep well at night being like, you know, I am trying my best. It's like, yeah, it's not the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but it's better than having not done anything. Yeah. And you've kind of used your fame, right, in the climbing world and you've leveraged that. So it's it's beyond just like your personal giving in a way. Um, talking about fame, like how's all that feeling, you know, with with the sort of the free solo craziness wearing off a bit? Um How's life life for Alex Honnold these days? Yeah, it's it's good. It's chill. I mean, it's funny. Uh, when I, when I'm at home, I climb at 
a handful of crags that that have mostly hard roots and so there there aren't that many people there and then i go to this gym which is like a pretty scrappy gym in vegas so there's like not nobody there either and and i'm like climbing on the moon board this like tucked away in the back corner in the very top of the gym it's like you basically don't see anybody so you know except for when i'm doing public events i don't really you know i don't really see that many other climbers i, I don't know which which is nice <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. The whole the whole fame thing is like basically I can go for a couple of weeks totally forgetting that that that's a thing at all, and then you know I can go to the a climbing gym in a, in a crowded city and like peak hours and just be like, oh my god, I totally forgot this was a thing. It's like kind of kind of crazy. And like, is it ever just like a real hindrance, like that you can't like actually climb, or do you, you like how good have you got at like fielding people? Oh, I, I would say I'm very good at fielding people. I mean, it's like, you know, just the, the free solo film tour was like six months of doing public events nonstop all day, every day. And then before that, I'd done a book tour. I've done all kinds of tours with Real Rock and, you know, adventure film festivals and things like that, like the BAMF tour over the years. Like I've done so many events at this point that uh, I do feel quite comfortable with it. I mean, I'm sure you've gone through the same thing where you go from feeling slightly shy and awkward to like, you know, it's like if you do this all day, every day, it gets pretty freaking easy. Yeah, but. I think it's it's a bit of a different different level, but I know what you mean. Talking about free yeah, so I, I want to answer this one question in the chat just so that uh, Sweet Philip here quits asking. Uh, but the, I feel like he's asked the question so many times that uh, he must be struggling with this in, in regards to how he's going to tell his own family that he's been climbing ropeless. But um, uh, my fa basically, I never really had to tell my family anything. Uh, the question for anyone who's not reading the chat is uh, how did my family react to the information that I climbed without a rope? But, um, but basically, by the... Uh, my father died when I was kind of young and, and, um, and then my mom knew nothing about climbing. And so by the time she really knew that I was climbing ropeless, I was like a professional climber. I was on in climbing magazines, all that kind of stuff. And so by then she's just like, Oh, cool. It seems like you're doing well, you know, keep, keep doing your thing. Um, you know, I mean, she did, she didn't climb at all at that point. So she didn't really understand what it meant anyway. Um, I probably would have been harder if, I had to actually go to my family and be like, here's what I'm doing right now. I know you think it sounds crazy, but, you know, trust me, I feel comfortable doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be a lot harder. Uh, talking about free solo, do you ever feel bad that now every climber in the world has to answer the question, have you seen free solo? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of proud of myself. <laughs> you know, I know everyone else is bummed, but, you know, still. <laughs> It is, it well, bummed that you did it. We just don't like being asked that question over again. Yeah, at least so many people don't actually know the name of it. They're like, "Have you seen that film? It's with this cliff, and there's this guy, and yeah, he doesn't have a rope." No, that's that's the worst. Yeah, but I mean, I have people all the time at like corporate speaking things where some like CEO will be like, oh yeah, I saw the flick, that thing that you went to Yellowstone and climbed that wall. And I'm like, oh man, you know, it's like when people are like, it's like, you know, yeah, it's crazy. Um, have you ever had anyone ask you like a really ridiculous question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything, anything. <laughs> like at, at one of the, um, at one of the free solo film events, uh, like early on when it was like screening in, in LA and stuff, it, actually it might've been at the LA premiere. 
this woman in the back of the room who apparently was some like semi sort of like B actress, you know, like sort of known TV personality or something asked, uh, like, what were you thinking in the gray zone? And I was like, does that mean I was like, is that like a metaphoric thing, like the edge of life and death? Or is that like the gray part, like literally when I'm climbing on the gray rock, which is the whole freaking movie, you know, because it's all freaking granite. I was like, I have no idea what you're asking. Like, what is the gray zone? Do you mean like the part where the rock is gray? It's like, that's that's all 900 meters of the route. You know, you're like, what? It, uh, I don't know. I mean, you get questions like that all the time where you Did have you know to what she meant? No, no, no idea. I think she was slightly drunk too. Right. Nice. Um, I'm going to answer uh, this guy's question about <clears throat> risk and being a father and also just like, so like, has your attitude changed towards climbing and risk and now you're having a kid, but also I just want to add in as well, like you've obviously climbed a lot with Tommy. So has he been like this parental role for you at all? Yeah, kind of. Actually, I think Tommy is a good example. So, so far, I don't think my attitudes towards risk have changed at all because of the child. But also, I mean, our child isn't born yet. And I kind of think that it's a it sounds like it's a common thing that fathers don't experience the full change until the the child is actually there. Uh, you know, my wife has been undergoing this crazy physical transformation for seven and a half months. But for me, I'm just like living like normal. But I'm sure once the kid is actually here, it all start to feel a lot more real. Um. But I don't know. I mean, I think Tommy is an interesting example of that because I've climbed with him uh, quite a lot since before he had a kid and and still, you know, ongoing. And and his attitudes really have not changed at all. I mean, he has always been, basically, he's always made good decisions. And I think that, you know, having a family, he continues to to make good decisions. And so I'm hoping that I'll do the same. I actually think that the bigger shift and like, I haven't done any, well, actually I have done some sort of serious stalling this year, but, um, but I haven't in the last, you know, several months. And that's because I'm focused on sport climbing and bouldering. And, and that's, you know, because we're having a baby. And, and so I don't know, I, I kind of think it may actually work more that way where it's like, because I'm in sport climbing mode, I just don't really want to go so long because I'd rather like train or sport climb. And, you know, and having a kid, I think will will force me even further down that path a little bit where it's like time-wise it might just be more efficient to train a little bit and then sport climber boulder a little bit um so i don't know we'll see i wouldn't be surprised if i don't start anything serious for a while but it's not so much because attitudes on risk of change it's just because i'm in like kind of a different mode for a while oh you frozen a bit are you back yeah i mean do you feel as well like when people ask you that question it's based on this idea that they think you're risking way more than you think you're risking you mean because they think I'm like rolling the dice and I could die at any moment? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I do think. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that kind of ties into this question in the chat right here with uh, what's your opinion on on amateur low level soloists soloing at busy crags? And like, is that justified? And I kind of I am not into soloing at busy crags. I mean, uh, you know, to me, the point of soloing is to have an experience by yourself. And if there are tons of other people around. And, and soloing in front of other people, it's just not that courteous. It's like, it's not that cool because they're all uncomfortable. And then you know that they're uncomfortable. So then you're trying to climb like extra static because you know they're all watching you thinking you're about to die. And so you're climbing differently than you might otherwise. Basically, it's just all bad news to, to solo in front of tons of people like that. So I don't know. I think I think that's kind of douchey. Like if you show, like I would never show up at some busy sport crag and just start soloing roots. You're like, what? You know, like that's crazy. And it's slightly contrived because 
if there are a ton of people there and there are ropes all over, it's like, just climb with a rope. You know, it's like, I don't know. It seems a little silly. Yeah, I agree. Um, obviously, like you've probably spoken a lot about free solo, but I don't know if I've ever heard you go into much detail about like um, kind of motivations. And, you know, I think I know you well enough like to know that you just like freaking love free soloing and like you want to be up there and like do the, the coolest thing you can do, right? Um, but how did you know that there wasn't like key extrinsic motivators there like how could you separate out like how much fame and glory you would get from doing this group right because like you know think think how much has happened to you off the back of that achievement and what it's what it's meant to you and how people perceive you as an athlete that's that's something that's you know like someone like Adam Andre just doesn't get from climbing like the next hardest route. I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. it's quite a different level of achievement. So like, and you obviously was, you were aware of that. So like, how did you separate that out? Yeah, that, that is kind of the crux is, is separating out the intrinsic and, and extrinsic. I mean, when you asked about motivations, I was like, you've seen El Cap, like, you know, the motivation, like you look at the wall and you're just like, what a freaking, it's totally amazing. It's a, uh, so, I mean, obviously there's, there's that side, the, the intrinsic side where you just look at the wall and it's, totally incredible and and then especially for me you know for, for me selling El cap was like the perfect sort of reach goal you know where it's like it seems very difficult and sort of aspirational but it does kind of seem possible particularly after um you know i guess by the time i sold it all cap i've been sort of oh i guess it's been 10 years of like hard free selling it's been 10 years since i sold the rosterman asterman and then you know nine since i sold uh, moonlight and half down and so you know, it's basically that sort of represented the end of this decade long path of like so long big walls all over the world, basically. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of the obvious motivation, but yeah, you're totally right that, that I knew that particularly with the film being made and, and the, the filmmakers approached me about doing a, a feature documentary sort of coincidentally, they didn't know about all cap at the time. And so they'd reached out about just doing a film project. And I kind of knew that if I was going to do a major film project, it should be it should focus on El Cap because that's what I wanted to do most anyway. And I knew that it would be this incredible film. And if I could actually do the climb and, and in some ways I wanted a little bit of extra pressure like that to actually do the climb. Cause I'd been wanting to solo El Cap for years. And then I just kept sitting on it because the thing with soloing goals is that there's never anybody holding you accountable to them. You know, like when, when you set sport climbing goals, all your friends are like, how come you haven't sent your project yet? Have you been training? Are you going like, are you going back in the spring? Have you been working on it? But like with soloing goals, you don't tell anybody and then nobody ever asks you about it. And, and then the years. No one wants to persuade you either, right? (laughs) Exactly. I know, but then it's like the the years go by and you're sort of like, I still haven't done this. And you're like, I kind of want to, but I just need like something extra. And particularly with El Cap, because it's so much work. It's like not just the, the, the pressure, you know, the, the, someone to hold you accountable. It's also just somebody to actually physically help like carry ropes up to the top and rappel down the wall and try the pitches and, um, and like a partner to climb with on some of the days. It's like basically the the whole film project was, was a great way to, to help me do the actual climb. I guess what you're saying is like the, the main driver was intrinsic, but 
in a way there was like that little extra extrinsic motivation to like give you a kick up the bum to actually yeah, totally. get it done and set a deadline. But that's, but that's, I think how everybody does the things, you know, it's like, you know, you sign up for your first marathon and you're like, this is great. I've always wanted to run that far. But then you also tell all your friends because you need that little extrinsic motivation. Like you need that extra little push. You need your your peer group to hold you accountable. You, you know, you, it's like, I think with really big goals, you kind of need to pull together whatever motivations you can. You know, it's like intrinsic yeah. motivation is one thing, but it's like, it's worth like taking whatever you can to, to get you to the, to get you where you need to be. Yeah, totally. But you don't usually die when you run a marathon though, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. That's how I felt. I've, I've run a marathon twice and I thought I was going to die both times. <laughs> yeah, I guess like when the risk is high like that, you need to be really sure that you want to be there because you want to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like Sean, we talked about this a little bit with Sean yesterday and he was like, um, he didn't want to tell anyone that he'd done the Fitz Traverse because um, he was like, I want to be sure that I'm doing it for myself and not like, the glory or whatever uh, but then people ended up finding out and stuff anyway but would you have climbed uh would you have soloed freerider if like you knew no one would ever find out yeah maybe that's an interesting question because it's like would you climb the thing is i think if no one was ever going to find out i probably would have sold the freerider with four points of aid you know would have pulled on one bolt off the heart slab uh, you know, I would, I would have pulled on like eight bolts, you know, I would have skipped the boulder problem. I would have skipped like one move off the heart. I would have skipped the free blast labs. And then it would have been the most joyous crack climbing solo of all time. You know, it's like, then you're just, would you have been content with that? Or would you not have been like, Oh, I know I can do it without the bolts. So like, I want that challenge to finish it up. Well, I think that's, that's where if you're really getting into intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations, I think for me, the intrinsic motivation is like the fun of soloing this crazy wall. Like I love soloing 510 cracks. And, and or 511 cracks, let's say, or maybe even up into the 512 cracks can still be like pure fun. But at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is getting pretty serious and like kind of hard and kind of dangerous. And then you're sort of like, that's when, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it is it is amazing to walk up Del Cap with with shoes in a chalk bag and climb to the top. Like it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. But, um, but yeah, if no one was ever going to, like if there was no history of climbing and, and, and the idea of free soul on the wall didn't matter at all, then like, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't strictly free solo. I would have just cheated in a few places. And it would have also saved me like a year of preparation. You know what I mean? Like I could have done that after two weeks of practice rather than two years of effort. That's so interesting to me. Like, I really didn't think you would have said that. I would have thought you would have said like, that you like really wanted to see the challenge through to the end. Because although like the intrinsic motivation to like move like on these 5, 10, 11, 12 cracks is like, all joy and everything there's also like the intrinsic motivation that comes with like challenging yourself one step more right like yeah no I mean for sure it's like that's like that's why we want to climb the next hardest grade is is not just like to tell our mates it's also because like there's there's like there's value and meaning and challenge in general right and challenge only exists if we keep pushing it yeah yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, because that's like what I'm doing right now is just chasing grades, you know, like like trying to climb the next hardest hardest grade and all that kind of stuff. Like the thing is, though, I always think of chasing grades, though, as more a way to measure personal progress. You know, it's like basically I just want to see improvement. Like the actual number doesn't matter so much as I want to experience the feeling of like, oh, I did something that I couldn't previously do. Actually, hey, breaking news. 
I just did my first front lever ever, like a week ago or something, which, which I know is insane. I've seen you. No, 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 never really? real front lever. No, I've been like playing with front levers and like leg lifts and doing all kinds of workout stuff forever. But for whatever reason, after like months of doing core workouts, I can suddenly actually do a real front lever. I've, I think there's been something like wrong with my shoulders or something, but whatever. Anyway, um, but that's one of those things where it's like, oh, after, you know, 15 years of being a professional climber, I can suddenly do like a basic workout thing that I couldn't do before. And I'm like, oh, it's so satisfying. <laughs> like, it's, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I guess I just thought like, you know, that you also, as a soloist, you just progress, but you don't progress in like physical skills so much, but in kind of like your tech, you know, you just the skills involved in soloing, which is like staying calm, you know, climbing efficiently, not overgripping, you know, I don't know, I'm not a soloist, but <laughs> there's also some heat. There's some key skills, you know, to be a solo climber, right? And you've like taken soloing to the next level, right? You're like the best at those skills. Um, I don't know about that, but really, yeah, I don't know. I well, I don't know. That's the interesting thing with climbing is that like there are plenty of people who have free soloed harder, like graded harder routes than I have, and I, I don't know. It's complicated, you know. That's the hard thing with climbing is that that everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and, and lots of people do incredible things all over the world. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, Alex Huber soloed 514 in 2006 or something. And you're just like, dude, in mythos of all things, like in shoes that like, I don't even go out You know, it's like totally it blows my mind. Yeah, I suppose. Um, just to the person who asked what's a front lever, it's like where you pull up on a bar and you get your body to sit horizontally. So it's like a test of core strength. Um, and yeah, then sort of like full, full body core stuff in a way, because it, it's like pretty shouldery and there, there's kind of a lot going on, but which I think is why I've never been able to do one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I can sort of like flop my body like this, like a fish, and that's about it. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I work then. Someone's asking about British climbing. You've actually been to the UK a few times, and um, I, I've had the pleasure of accompanying you on a few of your trips to the UK, I suppose. Yeah, didn't I go to Avon with you? Yeah, and you, I think your words were, Ew, is this a road cut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I remember, what, remember we warmed up on some like hideous little 7B plus, and it was raining, and I was like, This is everything that makes UK climbers strong. So it was like fingery and hard and like boulder. It was, you know, it was like, That was a Cheddar Gorge. Which oh, I that's Cheddar Gorge. Oh, yeah. which one's Avon? Avon's the one that's like really close to the city center in Bristol. I think we just drove through it. I don't think we climbed okay. there. Okay. Yeah, I know. Okay. I remember Cheddar Gorge then. Yeah. Because we climbed some like eight meter, seven B plus that was like hideous little holds and like light rain. And I was like, man, this really makes your fingers strong. <laughs> but like, it's yeah. I think it makes you a good climber though. Like you get really good at like weird technical crimpy stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, no, and, and the grit's amazing. I mean, the grit is, uh, you know, is, is yeah. God's own stone as, as people say. You think that's kind of your, probably your favorite experience in the UK? Climbing on the grit? Yeah. Like, 
yeah do you think that's the like the, the most worthy stuff yeah yeah though actually i climbed on the slate with you too and i really like the slate for whatever reason i just find it really like it's a unique style in the world i just think it's interesting kind of fun um you know i thought that was cool but i actually so the my trip to the grit was like a very you know successful trip and back in the day in like 2008 or whatever like you know, we, we flashed a bunch of hard roots and sold some roots and did a bunch of the like grit test pieces. And that's an interesting thing about, you know, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. I've kind of wondered if I went back there as an adult now, I wonder if I would even climb some of those roots. I think some of it I would just look at now and be like, this is stupid. Like this is too dangerous or like slightly too, you know, I'm like, do I want to do that? Like I can just top rope it and call it good. You know, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, for me, like the risk has definitely got to be like equal to how think how cool I think the route is. I think yeah, and that's how it is for British trad. Like there's a, you know, there's like the only E10 in Wales. My friend put up a few weeks that, ago, and sorry, go on. Oh, is that's when we Caliente, or is that that's E9? No, yeah, that's E9. No, so there's like a there's like a new route, but I just don't love the route enough to like you know I could probably do it but it's like not that inspiring enough for me like I could go if I broke my ankles on it you know I was like if it was the coolest route ever and I broke my ankles I'd be like you know what maybe it's worth it (laughs) but that's that's the thing with soloing our cap is you're kind of like like to me it is the most inspiring wall in the world so it is worth a slightly higher degree of risk and and a higher degree of effort than pretty much anything else and, you know, it's close to home, it's accessible. Like there are tons of other pluses for LCAP for me where I'm like, oh, this like makes total sense for me. But it but it helps that it is the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. And you're totally right that like with a lot of the hard grit routes, you look at it and you're like, this is not worth getting injured on. You're like, this is some dumpy little rock. It's like, it's it's so small. Yeah, I mean, you get some cool lines on the grit, but yeah, I know what you mean. No, I mean, um, and, and not to make fun too much, because I, I do think the climbing on the grit is, is amazing. I mean, the rock is great and there's tons of fun. But I think in some ways the grit is actually better for easy soloing, just like almost like highball bouldering, like wandering like standage and verbiage or whatever, like wandering along the, the, the cliff, just like going up and down easy stuff. I was like, that's so fun and so nice. Yeah, I I never take my rope and rack on the grit. I, it seems... <laughs> seems weird (laughs) it's because there's nowhere to place any gear anyway you're like why bother carrying all this stuff yeah and talking about the valley like have you got any cool like dreams and aspirations in the valley like soloing or just not like if you if like would you try the dawn wall or something i don't know i've always said that i would try the dawn wall if it was easy for me like if i could easily climb 14 plus well like if i could do it like adam on show up and spend a month working on it and then do it i would definitely do it because i think it's it would be amazing for that but the problem is i'm kind of more on the tommy level where it would take me seven years of effort i'm like i'm definitely not going to spend seven years climbing climbing the dawn wall it's like that's way too much effort but yeah i get that um I, th- this question, uh, Danny asked, uh, what's scarier, the Fitzgerald or public singing? And uh, I definitely think public singing seems scarier than the Fitzgerald. I would much rather go soloing on on, on the Fitzroy Mastiff than, uh, than have to sing in public. I kind of did yesterday. It was deeply uncomfortable, but um, it was more like chanting, so it wasn't too bad. I like suggested that Sean play music and then as soon as I suggested it I was like oh no I'll have to sing <laughs> <make me> sing. 
Um, you, you asked about Valley stuff and, and uh, there are a couple of LCAP free routes that I want to do, um, like things in a day, like the heart route Tommy and I tried, but didn't do like the Zodiac has never been done in a day. I mean, there are a bunch of things to do. And, um, and actually I've been hanging out, I've been climbing a little bit with, um, you know, Jordan Cannon, I think he's like yeah. sort of pro climber as well. Um, but he, uh, he's, he's young and he's all hungry and motivated and he has like this whole spreadsheet and lists and like all these goals he wants to do. And it, you know, it's mostly stuff that I, that I did, you know, a long time ago now. And I'm, but like seeing him so psyched with all these, these lists, I was like, I should think about some of that stuff. And, um, like he wants to do the, the LCAP triple, like climbing LCAP three times in a day, which is something that I did with Stanley in like 2010, I think. But Stanley and I had always talked about climbing LCAP four times in a day, which has never been done and is like technically sort of possible depending on how the splits work and the logistics and like it is maybe possible. And so, you know, I've been thinking about that. I was like, God, but doesn't it sound horrible? <laughs> it's like one yeah. of those things. It sounds like you need to have like a full operation afterwards. Like Yeah, you'd you'd have to eat uh, eat ibuprofen like candy the whole time. <laughs> like it'd be terrible. But. Um, I kind of like this question. Did you go for a pint of bitter after climbing on the grit? Have you are you still a non uh drinker? Yeah, I haven't I, I still haven't started yet, but I'm sure at some point I will. Maybe when you have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'll drive me to drink. Maybe. Are you are you coming back to the States anytime soon? Uh yeah, like don't know when exactly. I mean I'll, I, there's the BD athlete meet in June, I think. So hmm. definitely come for that. Um yeah. maybe do some climbing alongside that trip or maybe also just come in the autumn as well to yosemite yeah yeah for for all cap stuff or for uh because i feel like last time you've just been climbing little roots but but little yeah, roots you know poxy, well. poxy stuff yeah something on l cap yeah i want to climb high up like right, cool. i've been like stuck in the uk a bit too much <laughs> so i'm like really psyched to climb big walls again something uh taller than 10 to 15 meters yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that would be ideal. Um, yeah. Cool. I mean, is there anything you want to add to finish up on? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, a real pleasure to chat. I've, I haven't seen you in so long. It's uh, I know. I feel like I haven't seen my American friends in a long time. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. COVID. yeah. I guess this last question from Ryan: Ever climbed winter routes? That is a hard no. I, I do not. I live in Las Vegas for a reason. You do some stuff a little bit like that, right? You you were climbing in the Alps and stuff. Yeah, but in the summer, you know, not in the winter. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have I have ice and mixed climb a tiny bit, but uh, but but I, I prefer not to. But actually, let's answer this last one with uh from Emerson. Uh, how do you overcome fear when climbing? Because because they asked that earlier as well. Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's an like actually Hazel. What do, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I'd answer differently, like whether I'm a coach or a climber, but I think, I think the main thing is getting the challenge level, right? Like we think about challenge as this physical thing, but it's, there's also like a psychological challenge in climbing and you just like with physical challenge, you can't off, but you can't bite off more than you can chew. So it's really about like finding the right challenge level for you, like managing it when it's manageable so like when fear is a bit uncomfortable but you can still manage it that's kind of like what you're looking for 
And then there's like tools you can use in the moment to help you manage it. But the main thing is just to not like do something that's going to freak you out. And then you like start, you create negative associations with that thing. And then the other thing to do is like not to avoid things that feel uncomfortable at all. So and I think that's the best way to go about it. And it's what seems most natural, I think, as you progress through climbing. Like you don't start off your climbing career like aid soloing up L cap, right? Like you start in the gym and then you go sport climbing and then you go trap climbing. Like it's it's intuitive, but people don't really reflect on that process. That's yeah, that's a great answer. That's basically the other side of how how I would have answered, which is that uh the best way to to manage fear is to not get afraid, which is basically to prepare ahead of time and like basically expand your comfort zone until something just isn't that scary. Because I think when people ask about overcoming fear, they're normally thinking about like, how do you suppress the fear? And it's like, it is true that no matter how prepared you are, occasionally you just get very scared. You know, like I get scared all the time. Actually, yesterday, I sent a project yesterday at Potosi, this like endurance ATC thing, but I was pumped out of my mind, canvassing out this roof basically and skipped two bolts. And then, and then was like having a hard time reaching to the third. And I'd never actually like made that big of a link and skipped all the bolts. And I was looking down, and I was like, I wasn't even remotely close to decking, but you are sort of like, oh, if I whipped, it would be like the whole length of the cave. Like it would be huge, you know? And I was like, oh, this is suddenly kind of scary. And it's like, you know, obviously you experience fear, but you just have to take some deep breaths and, and compose yourself. But I think when people ask about overcoming fear, they're normally asking about that. Like, how do you suppress it? But the best way is to not have to suppress it is like to make sure that you're always sort of within your comfort zone and just pushing it systematically until, until you just don't get afraid doing a lot of the things that, that used to seem really scary. Yeah. And I think a lot of people look to someone like you and they're like, oh, he's just like born brave. Yeah, um, not the case. Something wrong with his brain, but like, you know, you did start soloing like really easy stuff first, right? Like you have, there has been this whole process attached to what you do. Yeah. And, and not just soloing easy stuff, but soloing easy stuff very poorly, you know, like over gripping and being all tight and being like, oh my God, if I slip, I die, you know, on, on roots that now I'm like, this is so casual. Like it doesn't even matter, you know? And, and, and yet when I started, I was like, this is so extreme, you know? I do think there's probably quite a bit of individual variation beyond just like what you do though. Cause I do feel like you're like naturally pretty good at it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think I'm, it's probably comes easier to me than for most, but I think part of that is because I've always loved the exposure and I love the position and I love, you know, like I, I love everything about it. So it's easier for me to sort of overcome that fear because I want to be there and I enjoy it. And you know what? Like when people ask about like natural gifts for climbing or anything, I was like, I've always kind of thought that if anything, my gift is that I love climbing so much that I'm willing to go out six days a week for 25 years. And that's basically what it's taken to uh, accumulate the, you know, the training volume, basically, you know, it's not like I have any physical gifts, but it's like, I do just love being out and like love having the adventures and just like doing it every freaking day. Yeah. I guess you could also say though, that maybe you love it so much because you're quite naturally comfortable with it. Whereas I think a lot of people start out and they, they, they like it, but it's, it's also something that they, it's just quite scary for them. So it's not like, Oh, I want to do that again in a hurry. It's like, I'm going to do that again in like a week's time when I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, totally. Whereas I'm like, I'll do it again in 12 hours. As soon as I sleep, I'm going again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Have you got any questions you would like to answer? I don't want to take up your time. No, no, no worries. I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm having a lovely time chatting with you, but I was like, are we supposed to stop at some point or, you know, I don't uh, know. How, uh, we've chatted an hour, but 
Um, if you want to answer more questions, go for it. No, yeah. Should we open it up to audience Q&A just for a few minutes? If, if anybody has the, because there are a bunch of folks, if anybody wants to. Uh, Someone want the dog after me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, we're looking for, uh, for for names for a daughter. So I was like, we haven't really thought about Hazel, but it is weirder when you know somebody with a name. That would be weird. Maybe. But it would be weird, so the 8A scorecard influence your early soloing. That is a hard no, because I've never even put any solos on a day. It's like, and, and 8A refuses to, to publicize solos and stuff anyway. So it's like a completely separate category. Take that moonboard benchmark. I will say that 2019 set is my favorite. For what yeah, that's what I have at home. Yeah, I, lo- I love the 2019 set. Yeah. Uh, all right. Any, any other rapid fire questions from uh from from audience here? Or are we uh should we should we wind down here? Um, there was one question about like your ideal way to relax. That's not climbing based. Mm. Maybe you could share that. Um, I I don't I don't relax in ways that aren't climbing based, like. Seriously, I, I hate vacation. I'd rather just go climbing somewhere. But I mean, to me, vacation would be like a different kind of climbing or like an interesting style or, you know, like doing a mountain traverse or something, you know, something a little bit different. But Oh, yeah, your electric truck. Why's your electric truck? It's supposed to be. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. It was like it was told uh, October and then it was like November. And, that, and then they said December. But I'm like, December is winding down. I don't think we're getting it this month. I'm kind of like, uh, we'll see when we'll see when it arrives. But in theory, we're supposed to be getting it like right now. But. And do you have an electric vehicle other than that? No, all we have is a uh, Sonny's car, which is her grandparents' Subaru. It's like this 2000. Basically, it's a little complicated with an electric car around Vegas because all the approaches for climbing are incredibly rugged four-wheel drive type terrain. And so other than like an electric truck, it's like there aren't really any electric vehicles that can, that can four-wheel like that right now. Um, though I'm actively waiting and excited about it. Nice. Kind of like, yeah, I'm ready. But, um, oh, gates in or gates out. I do uh, gates in. Though I will say that that's kind of a, I was like, I just don't think it matters at all. It's kind of like, I feel like it's, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make any difference. But um, yeah, a couple questions about a uh, f- favorite movie of the year. And, and what do I think of uh, 14 Peaks? Um, I was pretty into the 14 Peaks film. I mean, I think as, as a climber, you know, there's some big questions around it. We were like, and there's some ethical stuff. Like basically there's, there's a lot to like nitpick in it, but overall I'm just like, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty inspiring film. Have, have you watched that Hazel? No, I, I don't know if it would interest me, honestly, but if you think it's cool, maybe I can you, try You should it. watch it. If nothing else, just as a professional climber, you should, you should at least know like what type of budget and like production value films are being made about climbing. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things, like if you're in the industry, you should probably watch it. It's like, it's pretty good. It's uh, I thought they did it's mountaineering good. though, right? Yeah, it's mountaineering, but um, I feel like loads of films about mountaineering have, have happened, but it's not well, necessarily influenced climbing, rock climbing film. But um, let's see. Have you seen Dune? Yeah, I've seen Dune. Dune is freaking awesome. Oh, Dune yeah. is a great film. Sorry, I'm like reading all these random questions that are going by uh, so quickly. I'm like, oh, geez. Like, um, yeah. 
yeah, climbing gyms being locked down during COVID. That's, that's a hard question because living in, uh, living here in Las Vegas, uh, the, the governor explicitly allowed outdoor recreation for all of lockdown and all of COVID. And so we basically developed a couple of amazing new sport crags and, and never even had any real change in, in climbing. So I basically never experienced COVID lockdown, which is one of those things where you're like, Oh, I'm so lucky. And then you're also like, well, I do live here for a reason. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I moved here intentionally because it's yeah, like, but you, you, you could have moved to Oliana and Oliana in like, you know, like in Spain, it was like super hardcore lockdown. You weren't allowed. Yeah, to but ne- Nevada has a certain uh, like anti-authoritarian streak to it. You know. Uh, I see. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, so that's the reason you moved, not just for the climbing. <laughs> well, no, th- th- there's no tax in Nevada. That that actually is uh, it contributes to the whole like residency thing. Because you're kind of like, well, because I had been no tax. What do you mean? There's no, no tax. No, no income tax. So you don't pay tax. Well, I pay federal tax to the to the U.S. government, but not right. Whoa, that's mad. Yeah. At least you give your money to charity. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But also, the though interestingly, Nevada ranks fiftieth in public education, which is one of those things where you're like, oh, when nobody pays taxes, you wind up with the worst public education in the country, and which was a big, like, part of. We didn't necessarily want to have kids here because it's like you just don't want your kids to wind up, you know uneducated um but but we'll see yeah but i guess do they not get tons of money through gambling yeah stuff? exactly exactly and sales tax so they just choose not to spend on education yeah yeah it's you know america there there are all kinds of interesting issues here yeah um maybe you can just finish off by like your i don't know your take on covid and the pandemic like wait no i'm gonna answer this last one uh the, from uh daniel is outdoor climbing worth the startup cost or uh if they're a casual gym climber should they stick to the gym my thought is that you should never buy any of the gear until you've gone out with friends a bunch of times i think that that uh you should always just tag along with some friends climb outside a bit and see if you like it and see if it's worth it and then sort of accumulate the gear over time which is actually what i did i had you know like you know basically mentors from the gym like older people from the climbing gym taking me out climbing and then eventually I accumulated some old cams and then, you know, you get a rope and then you basically like get the stuff and then eventually you're able to do it yourself. But, um, but there's definitely no need to like buy all the gear and go outside. Like ideally you should go with somebody who already knows what they're doing. Yeah. Nice. Cool. You want to give us a, your take on the pandemic? Uh, I don't, I don't need, I'm, I mean, is there a take to be had? I'm sort of like, Oh, you know, unfortunate things befall humanity from time to time and it's tough. And, you know, we just all have to deal. Good take. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been an interesting, I don't know, especially in America, you know, it's just such, it's become such a weirdly like left versus right issue instead of like a public health yeah. issue. And so it's, it's like sort of too bad for it to get mired in all kinds of politics when it's like, it should it should just be a health issue. Like, and, and actually it's an, also an interesting look at how individuals balance risk in their life. Cause I think as climbers, we think about managing risk all the time. Like, is this worth it? Will I be hurt if I do this? But I think maybe for, for the general public, people don't think about managing risk that often. And so, um, you know, like, yeah, it's just interesting to see people manage risk. Yeah. I guess we do manage risk, but maybe we just do it with, like poor awareness because i mean driving down the highway like you're making risk decisions all the time but 
you don't think you are. I don't know. I just, I just had this exact conversation with my mother who uh, refuses to fly until quote COVID is over. And I'm kind of like, COVID is never going to be like over. So does that mean you're never getting in a plane again? And so instead she's driving, like she'll be here for Christmas with, with my, me and my wife. But uh, so she's driving super far on the highway and she's a seven-year-old woman. And I'm kind of like, she's not like the world's best driver either. And I'm kind of like, I think you're taking more risk driving across the country and back than you would flying for 45 minutes though. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean that those are the exact examples of having to manage risk where it's like, is that the right call? It's like, is this actually safer for you? Cause she's like, Oh, I don't like to drive after dark because it's like hard to see now. And you know, et cetera. And I'm kind of like, is it actually safer for you to be driving this far? I'm like, I'm pretty sure you should fly, but yeah. Anyway. yeah. Well, I don't know. Do you want to call it there? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's before we go down a uh, terrible, terrible uh, detour here. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. I'm going to jump in there. Um, yeah, brilliant. Hazel, you ask really interesting questions. It kind of makes a makes a change from the uh, how did you get into climbing and uh, and and that route. So, um, uh, Alex, as always, uh, every interview I've ever seen you, uh, you give interesting answers. So I think the two com the combination of the pair of you was brilliant. Um, we will post it onto YouTube tomorrow. Um, so if you, I know there's a few people dropping in and out um, uh, with, with technical issues and stuff. So yeah, you can watch it tomorrow. Um, and yeah, if you haven't made a donation, please consider doing so. Uh, the money will be split between Shaf, uh, which is Sheffield Adventure Film Festival, if you didn't know, and the uh, the, the Hummel Foundation and uh, Mountain Rescue England and Wales. So your money is going to a good place. Um, so yeah, it's... Um, it's solstice today. Um, you didn't mention that. You didn't ask any solstice questions. So uh, yeah, I'm off for a, a solstice moonlight swim now. Um, so uh, oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> um, I uh, it's, it's colder here than it is in Vegas. I bet you too. Um, okay, uh, nice to see you guys, nice. and uh, thank you very much, everybody. And Merry Christmas. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, Alex. Bye. Good, good luck. Good luck with the uh, with the baby, Alex. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I just want to take a moment to mention the fact that this podcast is still without sponsors and we also don't run any pod, uh, advertisements yet with this podcast, which means that um, everything we do is voluntary that said, we also need the podcast to be edited and that's quite time consuming to make sure that the sound quality is up to scratch. Stephen Dimmitt from the Nugget Climbing podcast has kindly offered to edit our podcasts alongside his own. So if you would like to support the work that he's doing in keeping both podcasts up and running, you can become a patron of his podcast. The other way of supporting our podcast and the work that he's doing to edit these podcasts is by donating to the Curious Climbing Podcast. And you can do that at hazel-findlay.com. Click on podcast and then you can donate there. As always, thanks a lot for your support. And I hope you continue enjoying the podcast. Mm-hmm.